scientists is the story of those who, like today, would use the marvels of science to conquer and enslave. Atlantis is also a fabulous adventure into the unknown. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to Cryptique. No Ryan tonight, so no jokes. Sorry, I'm sure you really are going to miss that. And like, subscribe, follow, share, and rate to help others find this podcast. You can follow us on all the social media links, which will be in the show notes. And let us know what you think at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Buy us a coffee in the show notes and check out our merch at crypticpodcaststore.com. Tonight, we'll be talking with Michael LaFlem about Atlantis and the stories which have been redacted from history. Researcher, adjunct professor of history and philosophy, Michael LaFlem attended the Harriet L. Wilkes Honors College in Florida State University, where he studied Western intellectual history and U.S. foreign policy. Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Ancient Legacy, is his second history book after 2008's The Specter of Reason. Michael is a book reviewer for Publishers Weekly and was a one-time research assistant for investigative journalist Whitney Webb while she was writing her best-selling two-part series, One Nation Under Blackmail. He's also ghostwritten for authors of the History Press. He's eager to share ideas with open-minded podcasters, authors, and radio personalities and is open to invitations and collaborations on topics of interest. His website? michaellaflemme.com that's m-i-c-h-a-e-l-l-e-f-l-e-m.com and the book that we'll be talking about tonight is visions of atlantis reclaiming our lost ancient legacy michael laflemme welcome to cryptique thanks for joining us how you doing hey i'm great thank you Appreciate you taking some time with us this afternoon, uh, right before Thanksgiving. Uh, can you tell the listeners where they can find your book and a little bit about it? Sure. Um, it's available. It's called Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming mm-hmm. Our Lost Ancient Legacy. And um, it's available in uh, English and Spanish on uh, Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble as well. Perfect. And... I have been listening to the audiobook and in it is very deep. I, I think I'm gonna have to actually uh buy a hard copy and read it. It it's it's well done as far as the reading goes and everything. It's just there's a lot. There is a lot. Not it's like a listening diff- to a podcast. No, it's a difficult book to um <clears throat> I, I've had a few people tell me that that they really enjoy the audio, but you know, you have to listen to the chapter sometimes, um, a couple times because it's true. It's it's a lot of information, and I think it kind of lends itself more to to reading. Um, and you know, as well in the Kindle and um, physical copies, there's a lot of you know supplementary pictures that I think really help flesh out the argument, particularly with certain maps and things like that. So. I would agree. But yeah, if you if you uh don't have much time to read like myself, then the audiobook is a is a good choice. So what first sparked your interest in Atlantis? You know, everybody everybody always asks me that, but mm-hmm. it's the strangest thing. Um I had absolutely no interest in the topic per se until um 
really one day. It's really hard to explain, but it was this kind of, uh, I don't even, I'm not really sure how to articulate it, but it was this kind of sudden intense interest. Um, I couldn't tell you why. I have no idea. It's one of the strangest things that ever happened to me. And it hmm. became this kind of strange obs obsession um, where, you know, as a regular, you know, history professor, that's my, uh, you know, was my day job at the time. You know, I had taught ancient history and things like that. And, you know, I had, like most people, been exposed to it through, you know, Plato's dialogues and things. But like most people who, who don't, you know, go deep into it, um, you know, on face value, it seems you know, a bit like an extraordinary story. And perhaps, you know, like many people think, oh, this is just an allegorical mm -hmm. uh, myth that Plato was using to, you know, reinforce his vision of Athenian supremacy and things like this. But as time went on, um, I was actually quite, you know, it took me about seven years to research and, and write the book. Um, mm -hmm. I was astounded at how much concrete and compelling evidence existed. Um, of the sort that, you know, would be the only kind of evidence remaining after, say, 11,000 years, if we are to right. take, you know, roughly Plato's date of the final destruction. So I think, um, you know, what I was trying to do was go from, you know, pre-Platonic sources, because that's another myth that this whole thing was purely, you know, emergent from Plato. Um, mm -hmm. You'll actually find that there's at least a dozen pre-Platonic mentions of it, although his account is the most, you know, detailed surviving account from historical antiquity. But I wanted to show how the story had evolved um, because I think a lot of people, they either start with Graham Hancock or they start with Plato, mm -hmm. but they forget that in the intervening, you know, 2,300 years, uh, <laughs> the story had been, you know, alive and well. And in mm -hmm. fact, there's some incredibly interesting accounts of this civilization from even the 18th century, from people around the time of the American Revolution who were studying this in Enlightenment Europe and taking it, you know, very seriously. People who were in touch with Voltaire right. and the Founding Fathers. So I wanted to show that not only was this a subject that, you know, has persisted for thousands of years, but that very serious thinkers have, you know, philosophers, Montaigne, um, Gian Rinaldo Carli, a lot of very serious people that are taught in mainstream history and philosophy mm -hmm. um, engage with this subject and that, you know, with the addition of more rarefied sources um, like clairvoyant impressions from, say, Edgar Casey or Frederick Oliver, it really put the jigsaw puzzle together and showed me at least that not only was there a abundance of evidence, but that the story actually is quite logical. It's actually not a fantastical story. It's actually, it just requires that we suspend conventional thinking, which suggests that we in 2023 are at the apex of human civilization. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. It, it sounds like it was maybe kind of a calling for you because, you know, I've, I've, read other books and, and, you know, watched YouTube videos and, and discovery channel stuff like everybody else. And I think everybody's just like, oh, it was Plato's story. They found Bimini road. Uh, there's high Brazil and that's about it. I know everything. 
but that is not the case at all. You go so far back in such great detail on so many things. And one of my favorite stories in the book is about the boy, I believe it was 1880s California, that Automatic wrote a book about it. Can you tell us that story? Well, that's a truly um, bizarre story. And it's always the one that readers of the book, you know, after they've, they've read it, you know, write me letters or emails and tell me like, I've never heard of the story, you know, how, how, how is this possible? And, right. you know, I hadn't either. Um, and that's the story, of course, from, you know, 1882 by Frederick Oliver, um, that became the book, A Dweller on Two Planets. And, you know, if my calling was strange, um, you know, his was even stranger, which is to say that in the preface to this book, which was just an unpublished manuscript until, you know, 35 years later, after mm-hmm. he actually was already dead, did it become a published book. But in his preface, he says that, you know, he was a 17 year old kid from a mining family living in um, Eureka, California. And, you know, one near the, you know, Mount Shasta region. And he said, mm-hmm. one day, he started to, you know, receive clairaudient messages from what he called his occult preceptor. And this voice told him, look, go home, start writing what I'm going to tell you. And this became this 400 roughly page manuscript that's so bizarrely detailed (laughs) that I even say, look, let's just pretend this is fiction. Okay, fine. (laughs) I can't prove that he was hearing voices in his head. Nobody can. Let's just pretend this is fiction. If this is fiction, though, there are major problems because he knew geographical contours of the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and sketched them at a time when none existed. Right. That's problem number one. Number two, he wrote at a level of sophistication describing, say, the Atlantean view of technology, science, Mm. chemistry, how their power worked, how they viewed nature, that were so advanced that even if it was a secret contributor, it would have had to have been, you know, Nikola Tesla himself writing some of these passages. Sure. You know, and I really encourage people to read that section very closely. Um, It's called Chapter 2, I believe, Visions of Atlantis. And you know, see for themselves. Because as I was reading that book, you know, I wrote it probably seven times before I read, um, before I incorporated it into my book. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an astounding and it's also a coherent bridge between Plato's account and his account. Because Plato's account is describing the final destruction of Atlantis, which in my investigation was one of three. Hmm. And it was at the time, let's say roughly, you know, just to round off roughly 10,000 BC, when the final configuration of the landmass would have been roughly three large islands, roughly where the Azores are now at the top of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And in Frederick Oliver's account, from a dweller on two planets, he puts the timeline of his story that he's telling from this, you know, clairaudient, you know, voice that's coming through his head. He puts right. the date at eleven thousand one hundred and sixty BC, 
which is interesting because he says, and, you know, this person lived a normal life 60, 70 years. And he says, after his character died, he said, in the intervening eight to 900 years, we saw the fall from this extraordinarily advanced, basically Star Wars level of technology mm-hmm. in 11,000 BC to an extremely primitive, almost Bronze Age style of technology before the final destruction, which really for me was a key because so many people, they can they can stretch their minds. Okay, you know what? Maybe there was a large island off the coast of, let's say, Portugal, and it had a circular capital city and it had triremes and chariots, as Plato describes it. Mm-hmm. But where does all this high technology fit in? That's not what Plato was talking about. And so mm-hmm. that's where the clairvoyant visions filled in the kind of prelude to Plato's account. Um, now, you can take that for what it is, but it wasn't just Frederick Oliver, um, Edgar Casey, Rudolf Steiner, none of whom read each other's work, by the way, all mm-hmm. pointed to multiple destructions of a civilization that had persisted for tens of thousands of years leading up to, let's say, the 9600 BC, 10,000 BC date that Plato would have given us for the destruction. So I think that's very important because I think more and more today with the TikTok attention span that (laughs) most people have, you know, they're really looking for the shiny object. You know, they see the Rashad structure. There it is. They see this. There it is. And it's like, no, we're looking for a global empire whose nucleus in its final configuration was a large island off the coast of, say, the Straits of Gibraltar, as Plato described. And when you really look for it, it's not hard to find. Sure. The problem is, it would be like saying, if you found the ruins, Roman ruins at, you know, the Temple of Jupiter in Lebanon at Baalbek, you know, or if you found the Roman ruins in Carthage, or you found the Colosseum, none of those is Rome per se, you know, right, right. You're finding vestiges of a much larger empire. And so I think people should remind themselves that, you know, if people find traces of this culture all over the Atlantic on both sides, um, you know, from which the Atlantic Ocean gets its namesake, which is another sure. you know, hidden, in plain, <laughs> hidden in plain sight type thing. Right. Um, it should be like, well, if in, you know, 5,000 years from now, people find traces of the English language in four different continents, it doesn't mean they've found England. It means they've found vestiges of the British Empire and its, you know, American extension. So I think I wanted to really show people that, look, if you're going to talk about this subject, you have to, number one, engage with the primary sources. And number two, you know, be humble enough to realize that you're probably never going to find anything that's absolutely, you know, the kind of proof that, you know, like digging up the city of Troy was when you're looking for one specific thing and it's exactly where you find it, you know, because even if we did find a circular city at the bottom of the Azores, um, who's to say that, you know, the Rishat structure wasn't a sister city, you know, if it's not indeed a natural formation, it's very possible. It's, you know, the Romans built cities that looked very similar in many of their colonies. They had mini Colosseums. Doesn't mean you found the Colosseum, right? So 
I think that's um, one of the things I tried to do was just kind of not complicate the story, but take all these different groups of people who are saying different things and say, look, you're all right, but we should be working together rather than divided. Because I think a lot of the researchers in this community were staking their claims on Atlantis and Antarctica, Atlantis in Malta, Atlantis in the Rishad structure, Atlantis here. And I'm like, look, these are all clues, but we should be looking for the bigger picture, which is evidence of a globally connected, highly advanced society and, you know, cultural, mythological, and even remote viewed and clairvoyant evidence of such. Absolutely. And I think that people are getting more open to, I mean, I can't imagine in Casey's time that uh, people were as open to this sort of thing as they might be today based on, you know, the revelations that that have come with people doing successful remote viewing and the military training remote viewers and stuff like that. What do you think caused this devolution in society from these people that, you know, very well could have had iPhones and Tesla and stuff to people that, you know, were using spears. Right. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, The only account, you know, I could tell you my opinion just deductively, but the only account in terms of evidence I have to answer that specific question is contained in A Dweller on Two Planets. Uh, the book mm. from 1882. And mm-hmm. so he says, okay, so this is a fascinating scene. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I got to give you a little bit of context. So in this story, you know, Frederick Oliver was a real person, had a birth certificate, had a death certificate. Um, and as he's writing this as a 17 year old, the voice that's speaking to him claims his name is Philos. And he's telling Frederick, I want you to write down my past life as a person named Zalm, who lived in Poside, the principal island off the coast of, you know, Portugal, where mm-hmm. the capital city of Atlantis was. And so in this story, Zalm dies, and he's in this sort of afterlife transition phase, and he's being instructed on, look, this is what's going to happen in the next thousand years to Atlantis, in case you're wondering, by his <laughs> twin soul and Zeme in this story. And he says right here, looking along the line of life's yesterdays, the reason became apparent why all the wondrous attainments of Poseid had ceased and left no sign. So he's being given this kind of vision of the coming destruction. And mm-hmm. he says, why Atla, which metaphorically held aloft the world into the light of science. Again, Atlas holding up the globe in Greek mythology. Had sunk beneath the waters and gone down into deep, mysterious caverns to be hidden in an ignorance greater than that which shadowed Pompeii and Herculaneum from subsequent centuries. Mm. Natural decadence tells the story. As the centuries succeeding the time of the great Y. Gwalin, who was the emperor, lapsed 10, 15, and 20 more, the nation came to a greater glory of mechanics, of science, and a physical condition than even Gwalin's time had known. One by one, the scholars found that those things which had always been possible only through mechanical contrivance 
were more easily accomplished by purely psychic means. They learned it was possible to, de- to this is the key to your question. They learned and very relevant to today with, you know, the World Economic Forum and AI. They learned it was possible to divest themselves of the flesh and in astral body go whither they would and appear instant as the electric current at any distance. They learned that they could perform material actions when they had thus projected themselves. Then it was that the cruder methods, veil, which are the flying machines, and name, which were their smartphones, (laughs) and all else similar, were suffered to lapse into that semi-forgetfulness of the suwerni, and exactly as they, so the mass of Poseidon depended on the priesthood for all those things, for only the few exalted minds could thus reach out into the deeper night side of nature. The many must remain in the lesser places. Inevitably, then, came corruption of power. The few were masters, and the many had no recourse, because the master of psychics is invulnerable to the laws of physicality, when wielded by men less than he. So basically, there was some sort of transhumanist impulse among the ruling class and the regular people. I mean, basically, it would be like Sounds today familiar. If, all, if all the engineers, you know, of all technology and computer systems and iPhones, you know, ceased operating and, you know, mm-hmm. decided to leave us with our iPhones. And it's like, okay, I know how to use an iPhone. I don't know how to make one. I know how Ethernet technically works on a basic level, but I'm not a software engineer. I'm not a hardware builder. So it's like, you know, I would lapse back into, you know, fighting with spears and things like this. So I think um, that was a really interesting aspect because even myself, I had problems with, Okay, if Plato is telling a true account, which I see no reason to believe he's not, because the story, of course, is an Egyptian story that was told to Solon, then told to Critias, then Dropides, then Critias, or I'm sorry, Dropides, Critias the Elder, Critias the Younger, then finally Plato. But Hmm. I have no reason to doubt the Egyptians were telling the truth because there's evidence in their own culture that in the story they told Solon they were aware that a catastrophe befell the earth around 9600 BC. And that's quite astounding. And they even said it was a comet. They described that to Solon in that story. And they say, you have a myth of Phaeton, who was a god flying through the air in his chariot, and he lost control and fell to the earth. And he says, you've mythologized it. But the myth of Phaeton signifies heavenly bodies losing their, you know, declination in the heavens and falling to earth and burning up everything on earth. Yeah, that sounds like a comment. Right. And so they knew this in the 6th century BC, and they put the date for that event at 9600 BC, which is the technical end of the Ice Age. So it's it's astounding that they knew that, Um, you know, and I also think it's astounding that, you know, Plato himself in the account of Atlantis that 
he tells in Critias and Timaeus, his two dialogues, he's aware that there's a continent beyond the Atlantic Ocean. Right. Because he mentions it. And, you know, I always find it interesting when people try to cherry pick that dialogue and say, oh, well, no, actually, the pillars of Hercules are, you know, the straits between Sicily and, you know, Libya. And it's like, if you are, be first of all, there is no other account in, you know, Greek history where the pillars of Hercules ever refer to anything but the Straits of Gibraltar. But right, right. it's interesting because in that story, to make it even more pronounced, he says, you know, the Atlanteans lived on an island in front, directly in front of, is the word he uses in Greek, of the pillars of Hercules. But they entered into the into our ocean which is a landlocked ocean, not like the true ocean beyond, across which you can reach the great continent beyond the true sea. For ours is just mm -hmm. like a landlocked pond. So it's like, obviously, he's talking about the Mediterranean, an island outside of the Mediterranean, and the North American continent. And in fact, he even says that in the you know height of Atlantean power, they had colonies you know, all throughout the Mediterranean and even alludes to colonies in the North American continent and in Frederick Oliver's account. And this is a 17 year old kid who had no education, who never read Plato to anybody's knowledge. And in Frederick Oliver's account, he says the same thing that North America, particularly the American Southwest was colonized by Atlanteans. And, mm -hmm. you know, they had outposts in Egypt. They had outposts in North Africa. He even says that the Amazon jungle was an Atlantean garden. Now, he said that in 1882. And right. he very specifically says, you think it's a pristine jungle, his audience in 1882. You think it's a mm -hmm. pristine jungle. He says it's not. He says most of the species here were transplanted by Atlanteans and were cultivated. Wow. Now, in 2020, I believe, an international team of botanists and naturalists wrote an article together that the BBC published that said, we now have to understand that the Amazon jungle has been cultivated for at least 10,000 years. And we have no idea how this is possible, but we see evidence of agriculture in the Amazon and many of these species appear to have been transplanted from somewhere else. <laughs> you know, so it's like, that's a good guess if that kid is just making up a story. Right. Which I don't think he is. I, I think we can pretty much rule that out. I mean, it, it's not like a 17-year-old kid's going to be writing like this, you know, unless we're talking Doogie Howser or something. It, so. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and it's interesting because... In that story he tells, um, part of the story is this character, Zayum, who becomes a diplomat, and he's representing the Atlantean Empire to other cultures, you know, concurrent sure. cultures around the world. And in this one chapter, it's my favorite chapter of the book, he's coming back from what we would call India today in his mm -hmm. veil. Now, again, this is written in 1882 before the first aircraft ever flew and his right. veil is a you know roughly 150 foot long aluminum cigar shaped object with no flight surfaces 
that entrains through some sort of electrogravitic night side forces, as he calls them, which can repel gravity and flies around the world. <laughs> so as he's coming back in this machine, he says, you know, we stopped here, we stopped there, we stopped here. And they're not arbitrary places that he picks. Like, for example, he picks, he says, you know, on the way back to Atlantis, to Kaifel, the capital of Atlantis, he says, we stopped in Lake Superior, what you would mm -hmm. call Michigan today. He's talking to his 1882 on it. He says, we stopped near Lake Superior to visit our Atlantean copper mines. And mm -hmm. he says, we were, we landed the ship and we were transmitted through an electric tram system through our extensive copper mining network on the islands of Lake Superior. Now, we know now that there is an extensive copper mining network of over 3,000 copper mines in Lake Superior, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and nobody has an explanation who did it. They're not Native American. Right. Gavin Menzies thinks they're Phoenician or Minoan. It's possible, but what if they're even older than that? You know, and what if, as Gavin Menzies' problem was, look, it could be because they've seen Minoan markings on these tools that they found in this cave, not Native American markings. But he said, right. the problem is the amount of copper mined doesn't exist in the historical record of those civilizations. And he says in his estimation, Gavin Menzies, it appears to have vanished into thin air. Now, I would argue if that was indeed an Atlantean mine to mine copper to make, you know, the one of the, you know, rings of the city Plato describes as being ringed in orichalcum, which in Greek is mountain copper. Right. That it's at the bottom of the ocean, that that could actually account for the loss of that copper. And again, it's like if you're just randomly as a child, you know, picking little fun places on a map saying, okay, in my fictional story of Atlantis, we're going to go here. It's like, there's only one reference to that copper mine, which was discovered in the 1870s, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. But there's no, there was no deep investigation of it. And there was no hint at that time that it was, you know, anything but an unknown Native American type operation. Sure. Um, so it's, you know, I really, what I was trying to do was not just say, look, uh, a kid heard voices in 1882 and we should believe everything he says. I actually wanted to show people, look, let's actually see if what he was saying lines up with physical evidence or cultural motifs that he could not have been aware of or, you know, geological land formations um, like that map he sketched. You know, right. which when you superimpose it over where the mid-Atlantic ridge is, it actually fits perfectly, which is a problem because no one had ever seen that <laughs> before right. satellite imagery and bathythermic scanning, you know. So it's it's things like that that I think um, readers have told me really surprised them because, you know, even people that were into already sold on, let's say, channeling or remote viewing, um, they were shocked to see how many things correlated and, and how actually the story did make sense over time once these certain pieces of the puzzle um, kind of fell into place, I suppose. 
Do you believe that uh, the people of Atlantis were just human beings that were very intelligent and highly advanced, you know, even for today, way back then? Or is it possible that they could have had help from extraterrestrials or interdimensional or, or anything like that? That's a great question. I think at the core, um, Edgar Cayce tackled that the best because okay. many people asked him. And again, we have to keep in mind when he gave these readings, um, you know, Edgar Cayce gave about 500 of his 15,000 readings that he gave in his life, 500 involved Atlantis and they were spread out over about 25 years and they mm -hmm. ended in 1945. That was his last reading. But regarding those questions you asked, he gave those questions, the answers to those questions from his hypnagogic trance for his clients in the 1930s. So this was before extraterrestrials were really, I mean, even discussed in public right. consciousness. They weren't right. discussed really until Kenneth Arnold in, say, 1947 or something like that. Right, right. But Casey said <clears throat> that the basic, you know, citizens were human beings. Hmm. They were homo sapiens. Um, but that at one point, or multiple points, they had reached a point where, much like Frederick Oliver, they could almost appear as gods to people because of technological augmentation, um, life extension technologies, for example. You know, he described the use of a crystal healing center, for example, to extend life in some cases into the thousands of years, as extraordinary as that may sound to us. Um, he gave a reading for one woman and he said, you were able to live. And again, this stretch is my imagination, but he said, you sure. were able to live 6,000 years, he told her. Now, again, I, I, I make no claim to the viability of that. But at the same time, there were a kind of almost Nazi scientist class that at one point in the iteration, and Casey always refers to them as the sons of Belial. Um, and, at, or, you know, and they're basically what we would call the empire from star wars you know and that's right. why at the end of my book i really show how it's truly bizarre how much of star wars comes directly from edgar casey's readings on atlantis and there is no evidence that he influenced the writers of star wars i actually mm -hmm. think it's a, a some sort of like upwelling from the cosmic you know collective unconscious or something because it's it's too bizarre the parallels yeah. and um, but anyway, he says that it was mainly Homo sapiens and the ruling class, the Sons of Belial, one of the ruling factions, um, mm -hmm. began this kind of, we want to see how far we can push our control and manipulation of mm. portions of humanity. And so at one point that involved hybridization experiments where they would yes. be cloning but then they would also be mixing animal DNA with human DNA to create a slave class. Mm -hmm. And that's a really interesting subplot of the book is, you know, what happened to the mutants when the final destruction of Atlantis happened and the survivors. And I don't just like to say survivors because it really was a planned exodus hundreds of years before. Okay. And it actually ties in with your question because Casey says, that at one of these interdimensional portals in Atlantis somewhere, he says that 
the priest class from the sons of the or the children of the law of one were forewarned by the beings from the outer realms or the outer worlds as he calls them so whether that's extraterrestrial or interdimensional it's to me kind of irrelevant it's just some sort of beings warned the humans through this interdimensional portal casey says that the final destruction was coming in the form of this you know comet and so i think a lot of people have this idea that you know everybody was just going to work on a sunday afternoon and the island was destroyed and a couple people got in rowboats and then suddenly you know restarted civilization but in the accounts that Casey gives and Oliver as well, um, the seers and the prophets and the kind of remote viewing clairvoyance of Atlantis themselves were aware. You know, they could see the societal breakdown, but they were aware of an astronomical kind of catastrophe that was going to come. And they selected, you know, according to Edgar Casey, three locations to preserve and reboot civilization. And he says mm. one was the Yucatan Peninsula, Mexico. Okay. The other was Giza Plateau. And mm. the third minor one was the Pyrenees Mountains. And you might say, well, what do these three things have in common? They seem totally unrelated. But when you think about it, they actually have a lot in common, you know, because if you study the cultures that emerge out of the Yucatan, the Maya, Arguably, you could even say the Aztec at some point, Um, not so much geographically, but regionally. And, you know, well, look at the pyramids in, you know, Teotihuacan. You know, (laughs) they're aligned similarly to the pyramids in Giza. In fact, it's Mm -hmm. the same configuration. And again, this was a man who had no waking knowledge when he was not in his hypnagogic near-death trance state of Mm -hmm. any of this material. He had no knowledge of Egyptology. He never read Mayan archaeology, none of this. He just read the newspaper and the Bible, according to all witnesses that ever lived with him, you know, who I cite in the book. So I think it's really interesting because as the story emerges, you know, you you see that the world that we inherited and that we think is, let's just say, um, the beginnings of civilization, let's take it back to, say, Sumeria or something like that, Mesopotamia, um, that those, in fact, were, you know, thousands of years after this catastrophe, you know, and and that's a great question, you know, that I can't answer, like, well, what happened in the interim? Like, what happened between, (laughs) say, 9000 BC and Sumeria? It's like, your guess is as good as mine. I have no idea because we have no records. But Casey, for, you know, one concrete example, Casey said specifically that the Great Pyramid of Giza was built in the year 10,390 BC. And he said it was built before the flood. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting because, you know, it actually, according to Robert Bolval's analysis, aligns with planetary configurations at that time. Hmm. So it's interesting, you know, that it aligns with the Orion constellation, according to Robert Boval, roughly around 10,400 BC. Sure. And again, Casey said that in 1932, Boval didn't discover that until 19, I think, 83. Mm -hmm. So again, um, 
you start looking at these things and what seems like just, you know, a fantastical kind of, you know, turn of the century channelings and things, it's not so easy to dismiss, you know, and I think that's really what I just wanted to show people. Not that, look, I found it and here it is. You can go see it for (laughs) yourself. But if we're looking at this the way we look at anything else from ancient history, then we're lying if we say that this is a myth or that this is a, you know, there's no evidence. It's like, well, the only evidence that would exist 12,000 years later would be what? Megalithic architecture, cultural similarities, linguistic things that you can't explain that shouldn't be there. And, you know, uh, people who never corroborated evidence all saying the same thing without interacting with each other. That's all we got. Yeah, you'd have to make a lot of uh, leaps to say that none of this is relevant and, and that... Casey didn't know what he was talking about. I could see if he gave, you know, two readings, but if you do 500, he's not going to waste his time and, and make up stories for, right. for no reason. I, I do think it's interesting that these man beasts seem to follow people to Egypt. That's what everybody yes. talks about when they talk about Egypt. Oh, half man, half alligator, you know, the mm. different gods that they had. Were these were these creations of Atlantis that followed them to Egypt? You know, it's it's a difficult and I think I'm not sure that I'm qualified to to answer that in, in the context of this discussion in the interest of time. You know, sure. because for example, like when you see, you know, the Anubis type characters or Toth type characters. I personally don't believe those characters are representing literally the head of an ibis on a human being, and that's the, something that they saw. Although, okay. <laughs> although Casey specifically says, and this is one of the weirdest of his 15,000 readings. I mean, it is to me worth the price of the book, this chapter, The Beast Within, I call it. But Casey mm-hmm. says, And again, he's talking about this in the 1920s and 30s. So this is before cloning. This is before, you know, heart transplants. (laughs) You know, this is before modern surgery, let alone cloning and, you know, embryonic cell research. So he describes them as things or automatons, which, again, you could use modern language and say he's talking about clones. Mm -hmm. But he refers to them as things or automatons. And he says... Many of these still had their animal appendages from the Atlantean experience. And he says not all of them were genetically engineered. He says, actually, some of them were original incarnations from an ancient, ancient time when souls could still break the threshold of dimensionality and were coming to the earth to incarnate for the first time in materiality and that they picked certain animals to go into because Casey denied Darwinian evolution. He said it was actually directed at first by consciousness going into animals in the beginning. Wow. And that they were playing around with different forms and that some of these forms in the beginning could reproduce and kind of got out of control, which is another (laughs) side plot because they had to destroy the, it's it's a crazy story, right. but that was yeah. one of the first destructions of Atlantis was 
the animal menace was overrunning the world, according to Casey. But in the third destruction, right before the Egyptian, uh, or right after the Egyptian um, exodus, Casey specifically um, was giving, for example, one reading to this woman. And she said, I'm a nurse in like Arkansas in 1930. I want to know, Mr. Casey, what was my past life? Because again, the reason people came to him, that was because, not just because, you know, their friends said, oh, there's this guy who's a great storyteller. It's right. like, right. he was curing people of severe illnesses that mm-hmm. no doctors could cure at the time, you know? And when doctors applied the treatment that he specifically told them to, it worked. And in fact, the New York Times wrote about him. Harvard sent a psychiatrist to live with him. Uh, University of Chicago uh, psychologists lived with him and studied him. And they all came away saying, like, he is able to remote diagnose illnesses and treat them. And we don't understand how, but it's working. (laughs) You know, and it defies (laughs) conventional science, but this man can do this. And so that's why people said, well, if he can do this, maybe he can look into the past or find missing people. Like Amelia Earhart's Mm -hmm. husband asked him to find his wife, for example. I put that reading Mm -hmm. in the book. It's very sad reading. So in any case, somebody said, you know, I'm a nurse in this life. What was I in my past life? So he regresses himself into a trance and he tells her like, well, you were in revolutionary France. Then I see you in Rome. Then I see you here. Then I see you in ancient Palestine. Then I see you on a very special mission to the Carpathian mountains. And he's like, what? And he says, you were one of the things that was brought with the humans from Atlantis to Giza. And you had the feathers and feet of the fowl as he used to describe it like so you had the legs of a bird basically but and you know it's interesting because that's what the goddess asheroth in um ancient you know canaanite religion has the 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 form of a woman with the feet of a of an owl so it's interesting Mm -hmm. but he basically says that you know she from the from the waist down was a bird-like person but she had the form and figure above that of a human. And he said, you had to go through a full course of treatment at the temple, beautiful, and the temple of sacrifice. And she said, well, can you explain what those were? And he said, yes. Mm -hmm. One was a surgical facility that, as Casey described, something akin to a lightsaber, but again, before Star Wars. And he says, you had to be operated on by the knife that cuts and cauterizes the bloodless electrical Mm. knife. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, (laughs) I mean, like, how did this work? And he's like, well, what we would call surgery today. So your appendages from these experiments were replaced with, you know, some sort of organic human grown human like appendages. And he said over three to five generations of treatments that involve not just surgery, but genetic manipulation, special diets, special sonic and frequency reentrainments, he says over five generations, your offspring could become more human-like than not. Mm-hmm. And he says, after you passed through this process, which took you years, and you were cleansed of your animal proclivities, you <laughs> were sent to the Carpathian Mountains to deal with the mutants that had 
been a problem over there. And he says the people there had cloven feet and were marauding, basically like satyrs or something. And you had to go deal. And it's like, again, it's, it's, it sounds absurd, but then at the same time, it's like, we know now we didn't know in 1930. We know Mm -hmm. now though, from experiments with pigs that humans have created human pig hybrids. You know, they haven't brought them to term, so they say. I'm sure they have. (laughs) I'm positive they have somewhere. If not here, somewhere in China or something. I was just going to say in some basement somewhere in China or Azerbaijan or someplace (laughs) at a black site. I'm sure they've done that. And there's a pig person running around out there. But we know we can do it. So imagine if Klaus Schwab and friends were given carte blanche and had no resistance and had 10 to 20 times the technology that we currently have and were motivated and were in control well that's exactly what these freaks would be doing let's just say that all fell apart and you've got now this remnant population it's like it actually as absurd as it seems the way he described the practical way that these people dealt with it and how this is a you know i think in 50 of his 500 readings this subject comes up of like you were at the great debate at this congress where you were voting for the rights of the automatons you know and his clients were like what the hell are you talking what are you talking about automatons and he's like the things with the animal appendages, you know, and they couldn't understand it because he was talking in the twenties and people had no reference to like, what are you talking about? We don't, we don't have surgery where we can, they hadn't even discovered DNA in 1920. So it's like only now I think can we fully appreciate what he was saying. And so that's why I really wanted to write this book. um, Jay was because I kind of in a weird way felt like we're coming back on that Atlantean spectrum of technological progress. hundred percent. I would say we're kind of like at the foot of the mountain, you know, Mm -hmm. but we're just close enough so that things like what I just said, you can't just say, oh, that's all a bunch of bullshit because it's like, well, scientific American admitted we can clone human animal hybrids. It's just not ethical. So that's true. We can do that, you know, and well, there's people that don't bother with ethics at all or morality right. or anything. They're just like, let's see what we can do. Exactly. And unfortunately, according to Edgar Casey, in many of these situations, you know, you had people that were basically like, you know, you had like an emperor Palpatine and you yeah. had, you know, the empire and you had clones and you had clone armies, according to Casey. And you had supreme technology that could do things that were, well, you know, again, I even believe that, you know, call it whatever you will, uh, the shadow government or, you know, the people that Stephen Greer mentions, you know, have reverse Mm -hmm. engineered successfully some of this technology from extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. But Stephen Greer warns about that frequently, scalar technology, you know, and he always Mm -hmm. says, if you think nuclear weapons are the most powerful, I mean, you're just wildly ignorant of yeah potential powers that can be unleashed. And that's kind of what Casey was talking about was the Atlanteans at one point did have 
essentially scalar weapons. And at one point, they themselves basically destroyed twice through two different weapons or energy sources. Mm -hmm. Um, Their continent, which fractured into five islands, and then finally, after the second destruction, was three islands, one of which was called Poside, where the capital was. And that's the island that the Egyptians told the story about to Solon. And so I always tell people, you know, if you want to know where Poside is, look at a map of on my website, michaelleflem.com, and look at the map of the Atlantic Ocean with the water drained out of it. And you'll see that there's a, I mean, the world's largest mountain range is at the bottom right. of the Atlantic Ocean. And according to Edgar Casey, that actually used to be the continent of Atlantis mm-hmm. 50,000 years ago. Um, and then it was destroyed in a human-caused technological situation that's in the book, fractured into five islands, second destruction, 28,000 BC, reduced to three islands, final destruction, roughly 10,000 BC, natural causes, comet ended the ice age. So Mm -hmm. again, I think it's like when people talk to me about, well, where's Atlantis? It's like, well, there's, you're talking about three iterations over about 40,000 years plus. Um, I don't claim to know much about the first two iterations. I just tell you, look, here are the sources from history and um, clairvoyant sources. But I try to show people that, you know, if you can really approach this book with an open mind, I wrote it as a kind of like, not just for experts that had already studied this. I actually wanted it to be a book read by people that were perhaps familiar or interested in ancient history, but mm-hmm. really had no good entry point to this subject, you know, yeah. because as I mentioned, you know, I think there's a lot of great books for specialists, but there weren't very many books that told the story from A to Z and then mm-hmm. also engaged with perhaps less than conventional sources, you know, and then also qualified those sources. Didn't just say, well, Edgar Casey said, that, you know, like the, the, you know, the great Karnak said this, it's like, well, I want to show people that Edgar Casey said a lot of things that had nothing to do with Atlantis. Like, I don't know, predicting the exact players of world war two, like nine years before the war started and accurately describing like when the battle of curse was going to happen and how that was going to turn the tide during the war. You know, and he wasn't in military intelligence, but he still did that. It's interesting to me, you know, you brought up um, reverse engineering. Who's to say that the Germans didn't discover one of these, you know, iterations of Atlantis and reverse engineer stuff they found on the bottom of the ocean and they're just not telling anybody? You know, it's interesting because I have a chapter on... um, you know, Nazi channeling programs and the Vril Society. And mm-hmm. again, I wasn't there, you know, I uh, only can report on what as a historian I've read, but, you know, there is evidence that there was a meeting in the 1920s, I believe, in Berchtesgaden, Germany, between members of an occult lodge and, you know, Maria Orsic, who was a famous, you know, the channeler woman with long hair. 
allegedly channeled a diagram of, you know, a some sort of flying device, you know, um, that many people think the Nazis perhaps didn't deploy, but were very close to finishing at the end of the mm -hmm. war. You know, there's even some anecdotal evidence that, you know, one of these was recovered by the Allies in the final days. I don't know. But, you know, they there were elements of the Nazis that were um, interested in these subjects, although I always like to qualify, you know, Hitler personally, publicly, he couldn't talk about it because right. it's an interesting thing. A lot of people forget that the Nazis, the inner high command, the SS and the secret lodges within the SS, many of them were into the occult and did rituals. I have a picture mm -hmm. of an occult ritual from, you know, that time period, but sure. they couldn't bring that actually into the public because they were going for mass appeal. So Hitler, right. for example, like I cite a speech he gave in, I think 1936 in Bremen, where he makes fun of people that believe in Atlantis. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, Hitler was sending people to Tibet to find ancient sources from strange libraries. Yeah. You know, and then looking for the entrance to Agartha, you know, and all sorts of things. So it's like, yeah. who really knows? I mean, I think Hitler, you know, Hitler used to hang out in an occult bookstore. So it's like, I wouldn't doubt it if he personally was very interested in the subject. I'm sure he was aware of it. But I think publicly the Nazis had to disguise the occult aspect of their thing, even though they were using, I would argue, 100% using occult transformation techniques during their rallies sure. and things like this you know all right well i know you got to get running i could sit here and talk to you for <laughs> six hours on the topic I, I appreciate you spending your time with me tonight no, uh, thank you tell the, tell the listeners one more time where they can find your stuff yeah sure you can um you can go to my website it's michael leflem l-e-f-l-e-m all one word um dot com and um there's a link to the book there, or you could just go to um, Amazon and just type in visions of Atlantis and you should be able to find it there. And um, yeah, I think uh, if you're interested in, you know, the work of Graham Hancock or Robert Boval, or even if you actually don't believe in it and you want to discredit me, I always welcome people, you know, <laughs> from that camp. I really do because sure. I wrote it myself as a skeptic. When I first started this book, I was convinced there was no evidence. And through seven years of trying to convince myself that this could not be real, <laughs> I was forced to admit, you know what? I actually see more evidence than not. And so I think people should maybe remember that, that I did not go into this book as a true believer. I didn't come out a true believer either. I just was astounded at how much had not been taught to me about our ancient distant past. It's amazing what's kept from us, isn't it? It really is. It is. All right. Well, you have a wonderful evening. Thanks so much for joining us, and I appreciate your time. No, absolutely, Jay. Thank you so much. That's all we've got for you tonight, Crypt Keepers. We hope you liked the show. You can check out all our social media in the show notes. Let us know what you think about Atlantis at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our merch and our Atlantis t-shirt at crypticpodcaststore.com. 
And remember, exploration knows no bounds. The past is a treasure trove waiting to be discovered, and lost civilizations are whispers from history, eager to be heard once more. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. <laughs>